you are a father, stand up for us, if you would. If you're a dad, why don't you stand up? And why don't we give all these dads a round of applause for being a dad? That's right. Whoa, 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 come on. You'll sit when you're told. Now, look, I just want to acknowledge that being a dad, it's a big deal. A young boy wants to find Father's Day as it's just like Mother's Day, only you don't spend as much. All right? And it's kind of true. And, And we like to reflect that statement here at Sunrise Community Church. So, Dads, unlike Mother's Day, no special gifts for you, no flowers, no carnations, just a warm acknowledgement. Oh, and actually, and a sermon on not being a father. All right, yes. There's one clap for that. That's probably good reason. You'll probably want to sit for this, though. <laughs> now, we've covered, you see, every, every verse in our, our series we've been going through on the book of Colossians, except for two, which I promise we would get back to. And those are these. Paul says this, I'm just going to read this to you briefly. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. This is Colossians 3, 20-21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So I was waiting for Father's Day, and what we'll do is spend a couple weeks learning lessons about fatherhood. And then we're going to have our kids in the service on July 1st, and we're going to do a little special uh, sermon activity, fun fest. We'll see how it goes on July 1st. And I want to encourage us this morning that uh, we can all learn from God's Word about fatherhood, even if you're not a father. Uh, You may one day be one. And you can pray these lessons from God's Word. Pray them into the lives of fathers you know. uh, Into the life of your spouse and into the life of your own father. Because you know, a father has remarkable, remarkable influence on his child uh, with respect to, especially with respect to cementing his early conception of who God is, who God the Father is. And folks, this is by design. Fathers are meant to model heavenly fatherliness to their children. So from age one onward, without any other kind of diverting influences, the qualities with which a child describes his or her dad are usually the same qualities with which they describe God the Father. So we're going to begin this morning. And, and by the way, as if I'm not already risking uh, you know, some of you guys checking out early on me because you're not a dad, I got a real winner of a sermon title this morning, all right? Get ready. Ten lessons from fatherhood done wrong. Ten lessons, first of all. You know, usually there's a law of diminishing returns anytime you have ten of anything. Right? Ten is usually too much. Ten ex-boyfriends. <laughs> ten beverages. You know what I'm saying? Uh, ten tacos. All right, usually too much. Especially, uh, ten burritos, definitely. All right, ten chimichangas. You're hurting people. All right? <laughs> Ten is usually too much of anything. So there's that. But, but, but what I want to say about this, first of all, in addition to these will be a nice little bite-sized nuggets that you can digest and reflect on later, I want to impress upon you this morning how rich 
God's Word is, that no matter how many times you read something in God's Word, you read a passage in God's Word, there's something to discover, to learn, to apply to life. Even if you've read something a hundred times, ten things this morning, ten lessons, the other part of the sermon title, uh, Fatherhood Done Wrong. Now, I, I get done right would probably be more encouraging. I, and we're going to do that next week, actually. Uh, but not only can we learn from negative examples, oftentimes we must. Negative examples. I'll give you a few reasons why. Number one, each of us has one, one chief example of fatherhood from which to draw. We have one. For most of us, and for many or most of us, it's a largely negative one. So one, that, that's often the example we have of a father. Number two, uh, negative examples from which we are to learn are largely what make up the Old Testament. In fact, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 10, 1-6, check out what he says. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. That means our forefathers, people who went before us, before Jesus. They were all under this cloud. He means this metaphorically, but then he gets specific. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses and the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. But of course, they didn't necessarily see that. Clearly, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, and that's why they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6, 1 Corinthians 10, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Paul is saying, you look back at the Old Testament, you look at, at God's people before the great rescuer and Jesus came, it's largely a negative example from what, which we learn. and A third reason we've got to learn from negative examples is our story this morning. Uh, we watch one father fail to learn from the up-close, frankly, negative example of another father. And I wish we don't repeat the same mistake. So turn with me, if you would, this morning. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And, and we're just going to get right to work, alright? We've got, we got ten lessons, so... You're right to work as we look at the lives of two dads, Eli and Samuel. Lesson number one, you cannot replace your baby. You cannot replace your baby. Not only every dad, but virtually every man has a baby in his life. He calls this thing, this is my baby, lovingly, playfully. Uh, Often it's something in his life that requires a little TLC and only makes noise when he wishes. right? Unlike a real baby, the things we often call our baby only make noise. Things like cars, uh, things like boats, things like guitars, musical instruments. We we take good care of it, and it's good to us in turn. We like these sorts of things. It could be a special project at work. You know, it could be a a certain account that you have. Uh, It could be a website that you have developed. It could be a portfolio that thing that will make you shine if you take care of it. It's kind of my baby. You know what I'm talking about, guys. It can even be a person. Uh, say a protege. Someone you take special interest in just as Eli did. A priest named Eli observes a woman 
come into his tabernacle one day, kind of like his church. Hannah prays for a son. She's childless at this point. She prays for the son that she will dedicate to the Lord for him to serve God all the days of his life, to be away from her, to serve God in the tabernacle. Eli, this, this priest, watches her pray, and then after she explains to him that she's just praying, he confirms to her that her prayer will be answered. And lo and behold, Hannah has a son, returns with her husband, Elkanah, and she lends him to the Lord. And so he, he basically lives with Eli and grows up. Let's read here together. First, starting in chapter 2, verse 11, Second Samuel. And it says, Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now, uh, read with me, if you would, to verses 18 through 21. We learn a little more about Samuel. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, that was traditional wear of the priest. His mother used to make for him a little robe, like a cute little robe, like a little uniform that a priest would wear. And she would take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah, that's the father, and his wife Hannah, and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So they would then return to their home. The author here is, is purposely setting up Samuel, is the, he's the wonderkin, right? He's the protege of Eli. Growing up before him. And if you actually skip a little further ahead with me, just do this real quick to chapter 3, verse 19 through 21. You'll see this fulfilled in Samuel. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. So not only a priest, but he becomes this sort of prophet. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And so Samuel does grow up to be this man of God. And frankly, Eli loves him. This, it, when it, for instance, when a respected prophet of God delivers this, some news later to Eli, and it's hard news. Eli doesn't do anything with it until God gives the same news to little Samuel to deliver. When Samuel delivers it, man, Eli listens. Because this boy is the apple of his eye. Samuel is the son that Eli never had. Until we realize, whoops, Eli has a son. In fact, he's got two. Look with me in verse 12 of chapter 2. Alright, so the boy ministers to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or pot. All the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all Israelites who came there. See, what would happen is, in the Old Testament, you read that God encourages his people, be careful to love the Lord. Be careful to obey the Lord. And that's reflected in the way people offered sacrifice, to take care of offering these sacrifices, to show how much you love God. And moreover, he says, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give, 
Give meat for the priest to roast. He will only accept what's raw, not boiled meat. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, because the fat would be burned and that was the fragrance that was pleasing to the Lord. You see what's happening here? Even the people of God, the people not in the know, the layperson saying, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Can you at least please burn this fat? All right, can you at least make my offering acceptable before you go munching on my food over here that I've come, that I've brought to you? So it, you know things are bad. The layperson's like, I'm pretty sure this is wrong. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you are not being careful about my sacrifice and caring about loving God. He would then say, no, you must give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men Eli's sons was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. The author of 1 and 2 Samuel does this a lot. In 1 and 2 Samuel, he sets up a lot of these stark comparisons. And so what you get is this very stark comparison between Saul and David, between David and Jonathan, between Eli and Samuel. And here, between Samuel, the wonderkin, the protege, and Eli's sons. It becomes clear that Eli withdraws from his own sons to make Samuel a son. In fact, he goes on in chapter 3 to call Samuel his son twice. Every man, friends, finds an external locus or project in which he deems worthy of his investment. And too often, it's not his own child who will bear a, who will bear the greatest impact of his father's attention, either for good or for ill. One of the greatest statements about fathers investing in their children I've ever read comes from this poet, Edgar Guest. He wrote this in 1923. I want to read this to you. He says, I've known a number of wealthy men who were not successful as fathers. They made money rapidly. Their factories were marvels of organization. Their money investments were sound and made with excellent judgment. Their contributions to public service were useful and willingly made. At the finish line, there was fortune on the one hand and a worthless, dissolute son on the other. Now he says this, when these children were youngsters just romping around on the floor, if some, someone had come to any one of these fathers and offered him a million dollars for his lad, the father would have spurned the offer and kicked the proposer out the door. Had someone offered to buy from the father the privilege of playing with the boy, of going on picnics and fishing trips and outings and being with him part of every day, he would have refused the proposition without giving it a second thought. Yet, that is the bargain those men have made and which many men are still making today. Lesson two from his life. Engage with your child at first rumor. This is interesting. Look with me at, at chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all the people. No, my sons, it is not, no, this is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. Now, the author gives us two very telling details to start out. One, Eli was old. And number two, that he kept hearing all that his sons were doing. You see that? He kept hearing. Literally, that means that 
this word kept is ma'od in Hebrew, meaning muchness. There was a muchness to his hearing to the point where he had grown old and he had heard it much. And only at this point does he confront his kids. He had plenty of opportunities. It's so important to engage with your child at first rumor. Not necessarily of wrongdoing, a blatant disregard for God, a blatant disregard for His character, His law. My children may not be culpable or responsible, but it's worth drawing them out to find out. This is where I find myself so similar to Eli as a father. I'm so reactive because daily I'm so passive. If you find yourself getting in too late all the time, reacting to situations because parenting requires daily engagement your child. And it pays off because as children get older, and I've talked to plenty of parents with this, I've worked with teenagers, windows of opportunity grow narrower. Right now your kids will ask you questions at all hours of the day. You're not expecting. Usually as your kids get older, they happen later and fewer. And you have to respond at like 12.15 at night. And that's when your kid asks you the question. You've got to be ready. But those windows are still there because of the time you put into daily engagement with your child. It pays off. So try things to daily engage your kids. I mean, monthly I have these, um, Katie and I have done these Christ-centered family traditions where, for example, like in February is friendship month for us because, you know, it's love and this sort of thing. And, we, and each of us in our family gives a friend a gift and we go around the island and we give our friend a gift and each of our kids see us give a gift and they give a gift and we talked to our kids about friendship and what it means to be a good friend. and You've got to try to engage. Family worship is a big thing for us. Uh, we're pretty inconsistent, to be honest, about the family traditions, but family worship, just getting with our kids, reading a passage in Scripture, singing together, nothing fancy. We sing some songs and pray with them. They ask questions, and it, you see it start to pay off. If you have older kids, there's something, a great thing, especially if you have boys, called Passport to Purity. It's like kind of like a weekend away with your, your boys or your girls too. Talk about issues of purity, engaging your children. Uh, and let me just tell you guys, I've I figured out most of this, just kind of figuring out along the way. I'm mostly clueless. Uh, I look at websites. I'm a pastor, but I look at websites. I look at books. I try just to figure out how to do this thing. Great website, familylife.com. I have it up here on the screen. Uh, in fact, uh, I just looked up this article here called 25 Things a Dad Should Teach a Boy. Just great ideas. Looked it up, trying to put them into practice. Because we can't show up one day to say, hey, I hear you getting into trouble. What's up with that? Just, that just doesn't work. Lesson number three, pursue and plead for your child even when it seems too late. Eli is confronted about the destiny of his children. Look with me in chapter 2, verses 27 through 34. There came a man of God to Eli. All right, so we know his sons are pretty worthless. They're going down a bad path. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? He's talking about Aaron the priest here. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel, to be my priest, to go up to the altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Notice 
the emphasis on Father here. Why, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I have commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves in the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. That's an understatement, right? Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength, the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Whew. That's heavy. And what does Eli do? He gets this news. What does he do? How does he respond? You know, as a father, and you hear this about your own sons dying on the same day, like many of the saints in the Old Testament who hear this kind of news, they plead with God. They ask God for mercy. They cry out to Him. Hezekiah, upon being told of his own death, pleads with God for mercy. And God actually extends it to him. Even though he said, Hezekiah, you're going to die. Get your house in order. Hezekiah says, no, Lord, I'm asking for your mercy. And God shows it to him. He pleads with the Lord. How does Eli respond? Nothing. To the point where this solemn warning is actually repeated to him. Look in chapter 3, verse 1. The young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no vision. So God's word isn't coming very often. It's not being proclaimed by the prophets to his people. But God wants to get one message across, and it's, hey, Eli, did you hear what I said about your kids? At that time, Eli's eyesight had begun to go dim so that he could not see. He was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. The Lord called to Samuel and he said, Here I am. And ran to Eli and said, Here I am for you called me. But he said, I didn't call. Lie down again. The same thing happens. Finally, Eli recognizes, Oh, God is speaking to you, young child. Go back and say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Down to verse 10. And the Lord came and stood, calling Samuel, Samuel, Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm going to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. What irony in the statement because Eli's ears didn't tingle. He didn't hear it. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. I will declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity, the sin that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God. He did not restrain them. Therefore I will swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's, Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Listen how Eli responds in verse 18. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Your sons are going to die on the same day. You're going to have no lineage. No grandchildren. How does he respond? Nobly, right? Well, it's the Lord. Not at all. He resigns his children to the course they are taking. 
I got to tell you, my father is one of my heroes. And one of the reasons is because he pursued me and he pled for me when honestly in my life, things seem too late, even at an early age. I, teachers, coaches, even friends, good friends that I had had given up on me. I, I lived to be liked. I lived to please myself. And I despised authority. I didn't want to hear anything from anyone else. I had a dad, to be honest, who, like Eli, was actually pretty negligent in our relationship in the early years. My dad was often away on business, partly by responsibility, but honestly partly too because that's what he wanted to invest in, and he would tell you that. He'd be off in in Hong Kong and Singapore. When he trusted Christ, he watched me head simultaneously into a tailspin, so he made sure to to take father-son trips with me. He just said, i got to do this. And <laughs> he found out what I liked, and that's what we did for these trips. Uh, one of those things I liked was golf, and so he tried to involve on these trips. And, and one of the places we went at least three, maybe four times was this place called Warner Springs Ranch. It was the middle of nowhere between Los Angeles and San Diego. No, no media, you know, no television, none of that kind of stuff. We snuck in a six-inch television just to watch sports. It was like he and I had a little secret. You know, but I went, still went kicking and screaming. I did not want to go, and I know that these trips were miserable for him. Uh, that was by design. My design. <laughs> I tried to make those trips miserable as part of my counter strategy. I'll never forget him telling me on one of these trips, though. He said, you know, Ryan, I take you on these trips because I just want you to see that you're ruining your own life. I don't know what else to say. Forget me, forget your mom, forget your friends. You are hurting yourself. And I lay in bed one night, just looking back at the last few years and just, just replaying the carnage that was my life. And I heard my dad. I heard him. Pursue and plead for your child even when it seems too late. And it's never too late. I don't care how old your child is. Now, so that's Eli. Samuel, on the other hand, Samuel is known as he's a great man of God. He lived a far more noble, God-fearing life from what we know compared to his mentor. And yet, even while he witnessed a negligent father figure up close and personal, watched this fatherhood unfold, he failed to learn the lessons and instead furnishes more for us. All right, so let's turn all the way over, if you would, to chapter 7, verse 15. Chapter 7, verse 15 of 1 Samuel. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. So, so Samuel ended up being a judge of Israel. It was this, this person whom God would bring uh, cases and, and, and disputes in front of judges, and these judges would lead Israel and helping to solve these disputes. And, and Samuel was the last of these judges. Let's read, starting in verse 15 again. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year. He went around basically to make, to, to make judgments. In Bethel, Gogal, Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there is where he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. Now this is important. 
You see how many times he emphasizes there. Location's important here. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judge judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in, the way, in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and preferred justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. That's always nice. Yeah, you've been a leader for all these years. Uh, behold, you're old. I was like, oh, thanks. Yeah. So, do I get like a watch for that? Anyone <laughs> I retire? I don't know. Behold, you're old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me from being king over them. It's just fascinating here. Fourth lesson, and we learned this from Samuel. There are times in every father's life when his reputation is vulnerable because of his children. There's times in every dad's life where his reputation is going to be vulnerable because of his children. A dad feels like a child is failing at something that he deems valuable. Right? It might even happen after the service when your children fail to mind you. They, they fail to speak up when spoken to. They, maybe you hear a negative report about them in children's church and you just have the, oh man. All these ways that we begin to wonder how this reflects upon us. And, and it does reflect upon us. So that's lesson number four. Number, lesson number five is closely related. Stay near your child even if it tarnishes your reputation. In a society in which parents and children live in basically the same place their whole lives, you'll notice this didn't happen with Samuel and his sons, Joel and Abijah. They, these, these dudes, or these, these kids of his were judges 50 miles away from him in Beersheba. What we're going to see is that Samuel wants his ministry to continue through his sons. He wants his legacy to live on through his sons. But once that doesn't work out so well, when they don't follow after his ways, as is made abundantly clear here, he distances himself from them. It's a little detail here in Scripture. But he says, hey, there in Ramah, there in Ramah. Sons, 50 miles away in Beersheba. One scholar, Victor Hamilton, notes that Samuel resides in Ramah while his sons are stationed at Beersheba some 50 miles to the south, likely indicates something of Samuel's desire to distance himself from his crooked sons by putting them in the boonies. I, I like that a scholar actually uses this word boonies. I mean, he just, he just sends them off somewhere like, go ahead, live in the bush. It is, it's so tempting to emotionally distance ourselves from our children when they don't reflect well on us. If you have multiple children, you'll find yourself wanting to identify with one while distancing yourself from the other. It happens. We say, oh, we don't play favorites. Don't leave that other child. Keep engaging. Keep pursuing. Keep pleading. When Bob was 10, he was a paper boy on one cold night while delivering papers, a gust of wind knocks him off his bike. And he watched in shock as all of his newspapers, a bundle of newspapers in the wind just came apart and blow away. At that point, this boy had a choice. Step up, do the right thing, or go home. Well, that boy, being 10 years old, he went home. 
He pedaled home. And when, his, when he arrived, his dad said, son, you're home early. He said, well, you know, yeah, I was done a little early. Get your coat and meet me in the car. His dad said. So they drove to the scene, scene of the crime, and Bob felt relieved when he didn't see any newsprint on the ground. He said, it's a miracle. His dad parked and, and told Bob to follow him, and they walked into a nearby house where a man greeted them inside, and he walked through the doorway, and Bob was confronted to a surprising sight, a room full of pages of newspaper everywhere. With hardly a word, these two men helped the boy put every newspaper back together. And Bob proceeded to complete the paper route with his father as a chauffeur. Forty years later, Bob wrote about this lesson of finishing what he started in a tribute to his dad. But then he wondered how his dad knew just where to go and what had happened on that day. And later what he learned was that after the accident, his neighbor had called his dad to complain about his good-for-nothing son and all the junk that he left all over his lawn and his street. Now think about that phone call. I mean, I don't know what was said exactly. You're good for nothing, son. We know that. It would have been easy at this point for a dad to withdraw. Uh, Either meekly apologize or kind of defend his son. But as he does that, he withdraws a little bit from his son. Son, I can't believe you did that. He's mentally thinking it. (sighs) I have to get you a new job or don't have a job, we're going to give up here, and he withdraws just a little bit from his son. How easy it would have been to do that. Instead, the father decides to reach out to his neighbor and and conspire with him to teach his son a lesson that lasts for a lifetime. Stay near your child, even if your reputation might be tarnished among neighbors, among friends. The father risked his own reputation for his son. And that, by the way, that's a great lesson for those of us who aren't dads to make every effort to help fathers you know teach their children. Impart these kind of lessons. Give them a hand. Number six, lesson number six, your children need to see you fear God before favoring them. Your children need to see you fear God before favoring them. Samuel proves to be the last judge of Israel. The last leader who helped Israel decide in these disputes and these matters and these The problem was this. There had never before been any hereditary judges. Do you understand what I'm saying? No judges by birth. In fact, uh, one judge named Gideon rejects this idea explicitly in in the book of Judges, chapter 8. But Samuel wants his sons to succeed. And he wants this lineage of his ministry to continue. And he has the clout to do them this favor. I'm going to... I'm going to set you boys up. I'm going to set you up. But because they're not called by God to be judges, every judge is called by God, but because they're not called by God to be judges, the power and the prestige of the position corrupts them. See, he thinks he's doing them a favor. As a father, you will be in positions of clout, positions of power, positions of promise to show favor to your child. Especially, you know, when they suffer, when they're in difficult positions. And we have to fear God, man, we have to fear God enough to say no to them. To fear God enough to let them go through some things. To fear God even to sometimes not put them first. 
Samuel got out ahead of God's will. He tried to help his sons, but because it wasn't from God, they suffered. Your children need to see you fear God before favoring them. Lesson number seven, we think we are helping out our child when really we're just indulging an idol. First, we see Samuel put his children in a position to carry on his ministry legacy. But we also get a couple other details in this passage. It's great stuff that reveal that Samuel's leadership is more than just a legacy. It's more than just caring for people. It's become an idol for him. An idol is anything other than God in which we try to derive a sense of satisfaction, a sense of identity. God calls us his child, and we're supposed to derive our number one pleasure from that, our number one sense of identity from that, but, but oftentimes we put other things ahead of God. And read first with me here in, in verse 5 of chapter 8. When the elders of Israel say, look, you're old, your sons do not walk in your ways, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Hard words to hear. What they're saying is, it's time for you to be done as our leader. We need a king. Now listen, they, say, they said a lot of words there. Listen to how Samuel interprets it. Verse 6. Pretty much just like that. This thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Now it's very likely actually that Samuel was writing the first half of 1 Samuel. So notice what he himself reports. He, does, he, he, he leaves off what they say. He, he, he hears, give us a king to judge us. In other words, we don't think too highly of your leadership anymore. Samuel hears what the people say as we are voting you in your entire ministry position off the island. That's what he hears. And then when we have idols in our life, we interpret things differently from what is said. We hear the part that hurts. And when something hurts, it's usually because we're deriving our satisfaction from that. We're deriving identity from that as Samuel does here. And if God ever rolled his eyes, it would have been when Samuel prays here. He's like, Lord, they're rejecting me and my judgeship. And God's like, Ugh, Samuel, come on. <laughs> Just obey them. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Alright, buddy? Earlier we read from Colossians 3.21, Fathers, do not provoke your children. You see a similar, exact same wording actually in Ephesians 6 about fathers not provoking your children. If the tendency of most dads is to fight kind of being aloof and distant, then when we do show interest, guys, kids, our kids take note. They long for that attention, and we tend to be a little distant. And when, when you jump in to make comments, take action, it's usually on something that really matters to us. We see something and we want to say it. There's no, I think, greater way to provoke our children in this day and age than to overcare about an area that's important to us in a way that provokes a response from our children. We care so much about something. We say it to our children. And okay, Dad, we're provoking our child because of our own idol. Does that make sense? If we care, they'll make every effort to make it matter to them, often to their own ruin. Whereas Proverbs 20, verse 5, Solomon says this in Proverbs, the purposes of a man's heart are deep waters but a man of understanding draws them out. A man of understanding draws out a child. In other words, as fathers, you have the ability to draw out what's in them or provoke what's from you. Let me say that again. As fathers, you have the ability to draw out 
what's in them or provoke what's in you. Number eight, I'm just going to say this quickly. Fatherly wisdom does not necessarily come from age. And the most critical moments of failure for both Eli and Samuel, the author makes sure to remind us of one thing. They are old and very old. We think, think typically of wisdom accompanying age, but the Bible conceives wisdom as taking knowledge of God, his word, his ways, his purposes, and rightly applying it to life. And when you get on one of those paths, the path of wisdom or the path of folly, it is hard to get off those paths, especially the path of folly. So those, that wisdom is accumulated from a young age, walking with God, rightly applying your knowledge of him, your knowledge of his word to life. Number nine, expect neglect of your children to cripple your wider ability to lead. We see this here, right? In verses four through five, that Samuel's neglect of his children, them being bad judges, led to the people saying, look, it's not only because you're old, it's because your sons are bad judges. We want a king. There's a reason why a qualified leader in the church must have kids who generally respect and submit to him. I remember reading... um, one time, the famous 18th century itinerant evangelist, a guy named George Whitfield, cool guy, loved Jesus, preached his word. He was once asked about the character and ability of a certain man to lead. And he was basically asked, what do you think of this man? And Whitfield replied, I cannot say, for I don't live with him. That's the truest test of a leader in his household. Number 10, last lesson. I'm going to end with this. Your child's need Usually, usually reflects your need. A chip off the old block, they say, right? As a father, you actually traditionally have a very helpful advantage as a parent. Uh, since traditionally, you're often away much of the day working. Sometimes you're physically absent days at a time because you, you may have to be. And because you are a man and thus you are compartmentalized, right? You can actually fire a person at work and then come home and, like, give your child a big hug. <laughs> like, like, within 10 minutes, this can happen because you are compartmentalized, you're a man. That sounds harsh, but you can approach your child with a certain level of objectivity. And I'm serious about this. You, you can see things in them with a certain kind of even-handedness. So I can, for instance, note that I have a child who makes sure every detail and fact is covered to the point of exasperating his mother. If something's a little off, he says, uh, that's not exactly what I said or how it is, Mom. (laughs) I know how to approach him about that. I have another child who tells a funny joke, but he likes his joke so much, he tells it two, three, or four times. And I know how to approach him. I have the same child who blames others before, for blaming himself. I know how to approach him. I have a child who at times will be satisfied with nothing less than winning, and I know how to approach him. But you see the irony here. Do I know how to approach myself? Do I see my own need in them? There's great irony here because their need reflects my own. As a father, Eli misses it. Turn back with me. Last thing we're going to look at, chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. And he said to them, Why do you do such things, children? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Know, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading about. Listen to this. If someone sins against man, 
God will mediate for him. This is him talking to his son. God will mediate for him. But, but if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they wouldn't listen to the voice of their father. Of course they wouldn't. How will our children listen to their own need if we don't address our need, fathers? Eli recognizes his son's need someone to intercede for them. They need help. And we recognize this in our kids. But we don't recognize the same need for myself. The things I listed about my kids are all things I have problems with and I need help with. Now today, there might be one or two or three of these lessons I've mentioned that particularly apply to you and over which you're going to be convicted, but let me encourage you to begin here. The same need for someone to come between you and your child and a life of ruin, a life of dissipation, is your need also. And that need for an intercessor is met in Jesus Christ.